Welcome everyone to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast, the podcast focused on leadership. The episode will begin shortly. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Dr. John Bedker Leadership Podcast. I am your host, John Bedker. Well, folks, last time we spoke about compassion, and I felt that was so important because we're living in this turbulent, troubled, often chaotic world where compassion is so needed, so important, so necessary. I talked about some of the reasons why and how we might be able to increase or develop our compassion in that last episode. Well, today it's a bit of a follow on, carry on, if you will. I want to talk about collectivism. Yeah, collectivism. So, the role of leaders and collectivism. I think this is an important topic, again, in our troubled and very difficult world. Why? Because the notion of we, the notion of us and our, this, in a business sense, team, oftentimes is difficult and challenging. We live in a polarized world with both an abundance of civil and political unrest. And political unrest, not in just the governmental sense, but that to be sure, but also in a business sense as well, which is why from a leadership point of view, this issue of talking a little bit about collectivism is so important because what happens in our world today is it does in fact become politicized and there are costs to that. And we're going to talk about some of those little historical context. Let's talk about back in 1960, a long time ago. Many of you listeners probably were not born. But back in that time, Ronald Reagan, everybody knows that name, former president. Ronald Reagan was the head of the Screen Actors. Yeah, he was the union head. And there was an actor strike in 1960. Ronald Reagan was the voice of the actors. Well, what happened when he became president? Well, he became a very anti-union president. Many of you are familiar with the PATCO strike. That's the Air Traffic Controllers Organization. Air Traffic Controllers strike. He actually replaced air traffic controllers. His anti-union feelings were so strong. So there's little question about the divisive nature that we're living in in our world today. This idea of a rising tide does not raise all boats. Well, you know, what do we know in a leadership context? We know that we have to believe the truth. We have to be grounded in facts. We have to believe in that and from our pulpit have to espouse that which is true. 
hard as it may be. The reality in the business sense is that a rising tide does, in fact, raise all boats. Not just that it can, or it could, or it should, it may, or it might. No, a rising tide does, and will, raise all boats. But we have this very different notion in our business world today, and certainly in the eyes of many leaders today, not just political leaders, but business leaders as well. You saw in the quick introduction about the former president, Ronald Reagan. On the one hand, as an actor in Hollywood, leading the Actors Union, and then as president, taking quite a different point of view. All right, so let's talk about this collectivism just a little bit. And I want to take a moment and give just a little bit of full disclosure. Um, those of you that uh, are familiar, uh, maybe a little redundant, but uh, I think it's important. Uh, not only has leadership been my life's work and my life's passion, but my training and my knowledge and my experience has been a lot about workers, managers, and leaders. And to that point, this idea of collectivism, which is to say unions in a business sense, has really been central to my research. Um, some of my writings and certainly my publications indicate that. I studied under the incredible, the great Professor Richard Freeman at Harvard for my master's. He is the Herbert S. Ashram Professor of Economics at Harvard and one, if not the, top labor economist in the world. I will tell you that I learned so, so much studying under Richard Freeman. Well, what happens? Well, we learned a lot. I learned a lot. And let me start by reading just a very, very short snippet from one of the landmark books about collectivism, which is to say unions. And it is, in fact, the book by Richard Freeman and James Medoff. It's called, What Do Unions Do? I'm going to read just two short snippets from it uh, in a hope to sort of set the tone, set the beginning of our discussion here today from a leadership point of view. From the leadership point of view, there is a paradox of American unionism. At one end, there is this sense that there's a plus to unions. There is an overall benefit to the social balance sheet. In most, not all, try to avoid those in-scale words, but in most cases. And, here's the paradox, there's a minus on the corporate balance sheet. Again, not all, but certainly most. We believe, this is Freeman and Medoff speaking now, we believe that this paradox underlies the national 
ambivalence towards unions. What is good for society at large is not necessarily good for, let's say, GM, General Motors, but any specific company, right? So the paradox is that this is really good for America. It's really good for Americans. It's really good for our social fabric, our identity as Americans. But maybe not so great if you're the stockholder, the shareholder, or the leader of a large corporation. Okay? So there's a bit of a paradox uh, from the book, What Do Unions Do? by Freeman and Medoff. Well, what does this book show? It's a lengthy book, one that I've spent many, many an hour going over. But in general, it shows definitively, you know how I like data, definitively and analytically, that contrary to the public belief, that unions play a crucial and largely beneficial role in improving workplaces, increasing productivity, and reducing inequality in our economic systems. Okay, so large book, short snippet, but I think it begins to tell a story. And what is that story? Those of you that are regular know that I've referred in the past to a book by uh, Thomas Piketty called Capitalism, a uh, very lengthy, very analytically driven book. Again, lots and lots of data. So you can certainly see what I'm about to say is fully corroborated. But there is this tension that exists, a tension between democracy and capitalism. Because the democratic sense, small d, uh, of democracy would say this rising tide really can and should raise all boats. We should try to improve the lives of others and in so doing, improve our own condition. Well, capitalism, again, this is very broadly speaking, this book I'm referring to is quite thick and quite dense, but, but basically says the capitalist really is hoping to do better than the person next door. And if, in fact, just my word picture here, my metaphor, if in fact they wanted to raise their boat, maybe they should poke a hole a little bit in the other boat next door, and in so doing, its sinking would raise the person's boat. Well, that is inherently not true, but our markets often believe that. So, what we see is that capitalism tries to create and inequality. And Piketty's book makes this clear about this doing away with the middle class of creating two classes, the haves and the have-nots. And the haves would gain increasing amounts of wealth, and the have-nots would be unable to bridge the gap and, and rise, that they would almost perpetually be left behind. So, there is a tension that exists in this capitalist notion and 
the idea of democracy. All right, so why does this collectivism matter? Let me go to another book just real quick to kind of, again, set this stage. And this is a book by Mike Yates, Michael Yates, called Why Unions Matter. And quickly, I'll read uh, just again a short piece from Yates's uh, book. Unions matter because they were the one institution that has dramatically improved the lives of the majority of the people and had the potential to radically transform both the economic and political landscape, making both more democratic. There you see that argument again. What's our goal? To be more democratic or more capitalistic? This is Yates speaking again. I showed with clear and decisive data that union members enjoyed significant advantages over non-union workers. Higher wages, more and better benefits, better access to many kinds of leaves of absence, a democratic voice in their workplaces, and a better understanding of their political and legal rights. And as sort of as a side effect, the people that were not union members benefited through these political agitations and through what is called the spillover effect, meaning that they might get similar wage and benefit packages to match their union counterpart employees. And so the case is clear that the benefits of collectivism, of unions, is not only documentable, but it is of great value to society. The challenge is to convince leaders, which is what we're here to discuss today, of those benefits. They are not, he said, she said, they are factual. They are real. They are the truth. And so what do we want or need to do to advance the argument? Well, from a leadership point of view, we need to understand, again, another struggle. And that struggle is, do we see collectivism as a threat or as an opportunity? And we need to think about that. So let's spend a moment. Many states have declared themselves what they call right-to-work states. Well, what that really means, just a bunch of nice words there, what that really means is they're anti-union states. They really want to prevent collectivism. They want to prevent unionism in their state. They see collectivism as a threat. They perceive it as somehow a freedom to not have collectivism in the workplace. Well, we know from 
a large body of research in data that just simply is not true. For instance, if you wanted to be more productive, I'll give one quick example here. Well, one of the ways to do that would be to have that employee present, right? Simple, straightforward. Well, let's talk about that. <clears throat> if asked, where is absenteeism higher? In a unionized workplace or a non-unionized workplace? Let's be clear. Absenteeism is lower in a union workplace. If the people are present and producing that good, that service, that workplace is more productive. That's not a stretch. Pretty simple, straightforward. So threat versus opportunity is something that we have to think about. And what is important in this idea of the we, the us, the our, and again, in that business sense, the word team, rather than I or me, we have to then say, yeah, a rising tide not only can and could, but a rising tide will raise all boats. But as I mentioned in the beginning, there is the paradox. Because if workers' wages rose, workers' benefits rose, their pensions improved, their health care, as an example, improved, well, that comes with a cost to the corporation. So, that may be reflected, for instance, in a stock price of a lower value. Is that something that a leader would do to do the right thing? And obviously, my argument is, I sincerely hope so. Because that better workplace, that happier workplace, that more productive workplace, that place that retains worker rather than has turnover, that has people show up to work rather than being absent. And when they are there, works efficiently. Now, people can always tell the story about, well, I, here's one, it didn't work that way. Absolutely true. We are not here to try to make the case of an in-scale, of an all. We're trying to say that it is better for collectivism to rule and to be part of a leader's vision of their workplace rather than the singularity, the non-plural workplace where it's one worker versus the other. How can I advantage myself to advance my circumstance for my best interests? Okay, so what happens if the pie is only a certain size? Let's talk about that quickly. What we have is pay, right? Which, which then spoils down to 
the benefits, the pension, all the other things that are involved with a compensation package for an employee. And if that pie is of a certain size, whatever that may be, the leaders, the leadership, the managers, will get a certain part of that, and the workers, a different part of that. So let's talk about a company that creates goods or delivers services. Those goods and services are provided by employees, people that work for that company. The CEO may be that person, but in all likelihood in a larger organization is a person sitting in an office, not the one creating the product, delivering the goods, providing the service. So what piece of the pie does the top end receive versus everyone else? Well, here's a number from the Economic Policy Institute. Um, CEO pay, the Chief Executive Officer pay, has skyrocketed 1,460% since 1978. Try that one more time. CEO pay has skyrocketed 1,460% since 1978. Let's talk about that typical worker, because again, there's a whole range of workers typically in a large uh, organization, a large company. Um, The lower skills, the medium skills, the high skilled, a highly experienced, a, a newly obtained, but there are a range. But let's talk about that typical worker, right? CEOs, again, chief executive officers, they were paid average 399 times as much as that typical worker in 2021. Well, corporate boards running these large public firms are giving these top executives, these compensation packages that have grown much faster than the stock market and way, way, way more than their workers. Well, that's an issue. Perhaps this income inequality is a problem from a leadership point of view. Perhaps it's an issue that should be spoken about. Why the pay is so high for these C-suite, as they call them, but these chief executives versus the employees. It is quite a divergence in pay, and it's a divergence that is continuing to create this wage inequality gap between workers and managers. And I use that word managers as to say the leadership. Okay. So what happens is we need to talk about that. We need to talk about collectivism. We need to better understand why and how 
it benefits not just society, the worker, their families, that company, but may in fact be a better path long-term than the short-term earnings per share gain that may get that CEO a bonus, may get them a pay raise of an exorbitant amount, and may cause them to say, I don't want to embrace collectivism because if they have a seat at the table, if workers have a seat at the table, their voice will be contrary to my individual interests. The number of stocks I may be awarded, the compensation package I may have, the bonus package I may qualify for based upon, for instance, a stock price, certain earning objectives being met. All of that may be happening literally at the expense of the workers. Okay, so there's the case. Collectivism has a real benefit, a benefit for the workers, a benefit for the company, and a benefit certainly for society at large. What it may not have, this is the paradox, is that stock price, that earnings per share uh, of the corporation. But that might actually reverse itself longer term. But a leader would have to be committed to collectivism, to having the workers, the people that are providing the goods and services, that are literally doing the work and delivering the product, delivering the service to that customer. There needs to be recognition that their tide needs to rise with the success of their employing company. Okay, so that will be it for the beginning. This is going to be uh, the beginning of my series of podcasts on collectivism because I do think it's critically important. Um, we're going to talk about some specific companies next episode. A little bit of a teaser. It's important because what do we know? We know, for instance, that UPS is at the precipice of a strike. We know that the flight attendants at American Airlines are talking about a strike. We know already that the Writers Guild of America is on strike. We know that, again, the screen actors are on strike. Southwest Airline pilots have asked to be released to plan a strike. So there is plenty, plenty of the lack of collectivism to discuss and to understand from a leadership point of view of what's going on in American collectivism. And we'll be, can you continue to do that with those specific examples and others in the next episode. All right, there we are. Thank you. I'm so appreciative. Really, really uh, grateful every one of you is tuned in. Take care, and we will talk soon.
Thank you for tuning in to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends and, of course, please follow our podcast and subscribe. Thank you again for tuning in.